0: Listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Psalm 63, we are in the middle of a series called Summer in the Psalms, and uh, we're walking through Psalms, and so that's pretty easy. Uh, That goes with the title, and uh, it's been a fun time, but the Bible is this one overarching story about God's redemptive history. It's just this one beautiful story about God's purposes in human history, but it's also divided up into 66 books. And maybe some of you are familiar with those books. They start with Genesis, they end with Revelation, and each of those books kind of fall into uh, a category or a type of writing, uh, a genre, if you will, And it's really important as we look to the book of Psalms that we understand so that we understand what the original author intended, that the book of Psalms is in that type of genre called the poetic literature And while we might find a moral of a story or a quick point or an idea that has been presented when we read things like narrative portions or when we read the Apostle Paul's uh, epistles to the churches, it's going to be different when we come to a book like Psalms. The Apostle Paul may be arguing a point in the New Testament And uh, as one author put it, the Psalms might be doing something different. It might be giving us a picture. So that's what's happening as we approach this text this morning, Psalm 63. The Psalms give us a perspective, provide context, and hopefully elicit, as one commentator put it, emotion that is to be transformative. So we aren't necessarily looking for a point as we approach this text, but more of a perspective. How are God's people, how are the Christ followers to approach the Christian life? We're not looking necessarily for a point, but a perspective. C.S. Lewis picked up on that perspective in his comments regarding this psalm, and he says that it is here that he finds an experience fully God-centered, asking of God no gift but of himself, joyous, to the highest degree and unmistakably real. He goes on to say about this psalm and some others like it that it expresses, I don't want you to miss this, an appetite for God. That is, it has all the cheerful spontaneity of a natural even a physical desire. What we'll see together in this psalm is that David describes in this psalm a desire for God that doesn't wane when the difficult times come. We do not always desire God that way, though, do we? You might find yourself in the midst of a difficult time today, and you would say, I am not able to resonate with this psalm in the way that I would like to, and that's okay. You're welcome here. This morning, and I want us to be together as we walk through this psalm. We're often distracted by our circumstances or led astray by alternative desires and appetite, and some of those things seem much louder than what we know our desire for God might should be. So what is Psalm 63 for? Psalm 63 is not so that we could read it and we could think, man, I must have a faith like David. And if I don't have a faith like David, then I am a terrible Christian. How am I going to get a desire like this? No, Psalm 63 comes in and it helps us to reorient our lives and our desires and our appetites around the living God. That is the point of Psalm 63. Remember, we aren't looking for a point this morning, but more of a perspective. So perhaps an overarching question might help us uh, put this whole passage into context and work towards that end. The question is this, how can we develop an appetite for God that can withstand the desert? How can we, as the people of God, develop an appetite for God that can withstand the most difficult days, that can withstand a wilderness? And we'll find David there in our text this morning. I think David gives us three pursuits towards developing this kind of appetite. And the first pursuit is this, a thirst for God. Now, first, I want to to gain some context. In the title of this psalm, if you look there in your Bible with me, it says probably something like this. This is a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of where? Judah. When David was in the wilderness of Judah and since he refers to himself as king in verse 11, it's most likely, we don't know for sure, but it's most likely, the context, is when David was fleeing from his own son. Anybody know? Absalom. This is likely the context that David writes Psalm 63 in. Absalom had rebelled from his father and he had attempted to take the throne away from his father, David. So David escapes. King David has been driven out of his own palace. He's been driven out of the city, out of the place of the worship of the people of God. He's been driven away from the temple, away from the Ark of the Covenant and into the wilderness. In 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30, we see that David leaves all of these things barefooted and with his head covered as he head, heads to the Mount of Olives. Now, David, having every single comfort of his life removed from him, and with his own flesh and blood, his son Absalom against him, rebelling against him, trying to usurp his kingship, he begins to sing, verse 1, O God, you are my God earnestly, or in some translations, early, I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. After everything has been ripped away from King David, after he has been driven away from the place and the people and the God and where he worships the living God, he says, oh my God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. When everything is stripped away, we see that David, the thing that David desired most, and who is that? God. When everything is stripped away, King David is left with God. This was a personal and intimate relationship. One commentator wrote, first, there must be the consciousness of personal relationship. Oh God, thou art my God. And second, there must be earnest seeking after him. Early will I seek thee. Relationship must be established. Fellowship, the commentator says, must be cultivated. We see David having a relationship with God established. He says, my God, this is a personal and intimate relationship. If It involved more than a religious exercise for David. David's relationship, again, had already been established. And given the way that he's speaking about his God, fellowship was surely being cultivated. And so we as the people of God come to this text and we must wonder, how in the world did David get to this place? I don't know about you, but when the hard times hit, when I find myself in the midst of the wilderness, this is where I want to be. When everything is stripped away, I want to be able to echo with Job. The Lord gives and takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. It is he that matters most. I read one commentator that said David's hunger determined his habits, meaning he hungered for God so that he then worshiped God. His circumstances weren't going to change the thing in which he most desired, and he recognized that, and I don't doubt that this is the case in David's life or for the Christian. I certainly know that to be true in my own life, but I also know the opposite to be true. Moving back, I I realize that sometimes, even in my own life, in a profoundly non-spiritual way, that hunger often leads to habit. And I'll give you a quick example. Some of you might be able to resonate and identify. But my hunger for Oreos determines the habit. In that, when it is 10 o'clock at night and I have not yet gone to sleep, I walk into the kitchen and there are Oreos there sometimes. And when there are not, I'm very sad. But there are Oreos and I grab them and I pour me a glass of milk and I sit there and I eat those Oreos. Whether good or bad, you can make all the judgment calls, you can look at me all you want and you can see that that is true. My hunger determines my habit. But I also think in the Christian life, the opposite can be true as well. That sometimes our habits will begin to inform what we are truly hungry about. How much of David's habits informed his hunger? David begins to remember such habits. Look there in verse two. He says, so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. You see, David remembers what it was like when he was back in his home city, when he was back among the people of God, when he was before the ark, Behold your power and glory. He remembers what it was like to worship the Lord in his sanctuary. It had been a regular rhythm in David's life. He states that God's steadfast, continual, faithful covenant has said love is better than life itself. And because of that, he will do three things. Verse three, we see that he'll praise God with his lips. He'll bless God as long as he lives and he will lift up his holy hands. Verse four, David's worship of the Lord continues beyond the corporate gathering. I want you to not miss that. It's not less than being a part of the corporate gathering, but it is not only worship with the people of God before the living God. This is a part of the habits that have informed his hunger. John Chrysostom, who's often referred to as golden mouth because he had such an ability to preach. He was one of the early church fathers. He he said that among the primitive Christians, the early church, it was decreed and ordained that no day should pass without the reading of this psalm. No day should pass. And as I read through Psalm 63, I have to wonder why. Why was this Psalm ordained and decreed that we would read this every single day? Is it because every day is so difficult? Is it because every single day is in a wilderness? I hope not. Maybe you feel like it's been like that lately. But I think it's because even in the calm, we are to plan for the difficult especially in the calm, we are to plan for the desert. Do you hear that? When things are going well, the Lord has given us a moment of reprieve so that we can plan for the difficult days to come. Why? Because perhaps it is that we are to habituate that which we know to be true, good, and right. We to make those things part of who we are. Charles Spurgeon said this, "Learn from this and do not say, I will get into communion with God when I feel better. But long for communion now. It is one of the temptations of the devil to tell you not to pray when you do not feel like praying. Pray twice as much then. I think we could all resonate with that statement in that there never seems to be the right day. There never seems to the day that comes when you say, I'm going to finally start praying again. I'm going to finally start picking up with the fellowship that I once had, sweet fellowship with God. And I'm going to finally start a rhythm again of attending the corporate gathering. It goes on and on, there's never a right time. It's one of the great temptations of the devil, Charles Spurgeon said. Jesus himself, just before his public ministry, had his own wilderness account. The Lord, after his baptism, was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness where he was tempted for how many days? Forty days. He was tempted over and over and over again, and the Scripture records three of those temptations. Each time as he's tempted by the devil, he responds with what? scripture. He he responds with God's word over and over again. One of the things that sticks out to me as these two wilderness accounts are compared is that the devil is tempting Jesus with the idea that he doesn't deserve to be where he is. You should not be here You should not be in this place. He shouldn't be suffering. He says, if you're the son of God, command this stone to be bread. You should be eating. Do you know who you are? You're God. He says, I'll give you all authority and glory. Don't you know that that's what you should have? Don't you remember that that's what you did have before you came to the earth as a poor baby? If you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Jesus, you shouldn't be hungry. Jesus, you should be getting more honor and glory and riches than you have now. Jesus, you can do anything. I don't know where you are today, brother, sister, friend. But I do do know whether you are in the midst of the wilderness now or whether you are heading into one, we will all face our wildernesses. And the time to prepare for that is now. The time to prepare is now. The tactics of the enemy, you see, haven't changed all that much. He still attempts, and maybe you can identify with this today, he still attempts to to creep in and say, you know, God doesn't love you that much. You know that God has left you and he doesn't care about your situation any longer? He creeps in and says, You don't deserve the life that you're living right now. You deserve so much more. God is holding out on you. He's keeping all of his goodness and glory and honor and riches from you. You should be receiving a lot more from your family. You should have a lot better friends. You should have a lot better church members. Your boss should be a lot better to you your coworkers. It goes on and on and on. You should not be suffering. I thought you were a child of God. Doesn't God love his children? You must not be one of them. And the wilderness comes. And when the wilderness comes, we will respond in the way that gives us what we most desire. When the wilderness comes, we will respond in the way that gives us What we most desire. Christ Jesus had a vision for his people to be with them. He knew what was before him, you see. While he was being tempted for those 40 days without food and water, an impossibility. Humanly speaking, he knew what was before him. He knew that he had been given a task from God the Father, and he was happily working that plan out. He knew exactly what was before him. David knew that the circumstances he found himself in were the worst of the worst, but he knew, he said this, he knew that the love of God was better than life itself. Friend, again, how can we develop an appetite for God that can withstand the desert? David says we thirst for him. You say, but Pastor Chris, I've tried thirsting for God and it doesn't work. Perhaps that's true. And so along with the psalmist, I might lovingly ask, what are the things that you have allowed in your life that are teaching you, habituating you as to what life really is? So you might, with your definition of life, be able to say, I've tried everything. I've gone to church, I've read the Bible, I've prayed, I've done every religious exercise I've ever heard. I've even tried journaling. Guys are like, I haven't." not all of us have tried that. I've, I've almost tried everything you can possibly imagine, and still I don't have the rest and desires that I think that I need. And I would wonder again, what is it that you have allowed in your life that has been teaching you what life really is? You see, it's going to be very difficult. Hear this carefully. It's going to be very difficult, you see, to immerse yourself in every single thing that the world has to offer. And I don't speak of this like a curmudgeon preacher of old. Okay, hear this. But it is going to be very difficult for you to give yourself away to everything that the world has to offer. All of its music, every bit of social media, all of the podcasts and then come away from every bit of it and say i have no idea why this life with god isn't working because you've allowed everything that the world has to offer teach you what life is god in his kindness is saying i am life Jesus Christ comes on the scene several thousand years later and says, it is me. I am who you've been thirsting after. I am life. Life is found within me. There's an enemy who's working to see your definition of life changed and he will use your habits to do it. For King David, his habits had informed his hunger. Don't miss that. When the, when the wilderness comes, it always exposes desire. But don't lose heart. Because you might find yourself in the midst of a wilderness and you would say, Chris, I, I want that to be true. I desire that to be true. But I'm just not there. The beauty of the gospel is that this is a model on how we are to develop an appetite for God that can withstand the desert, but Christ comes on the scene as this very fulfillment. And those of us who are clinging by faith to Christ Jesus, we have been given his Holy Spirit who is then conforming us into his image, who is continually shaping his desires into us, who is restoring our desires back to the way that they were originally designed, all for God. Pastor John Piper writes, the deepest longing of the human heart is to know and enjoy the glory of God. We were made for this. Your habits may have given way to every single thing that the world offers, but if you are in Christ, you absolutely know that there is something much more, much deeper. Let me pause to acknowledge that I am pastorally and personally aware that there are many of you in our small fellowship that are in the midst of the wilderness. I know that to be the case. I was set with a mom this week who lost her 18-year-old daughter by a car. This week. Her kids are having to deal with the effects of it. There were countless people in our small fellowship that were in the hospital. Some thinking that they had blood clots in their lungs. Some are awaiting surgeries, open heart surgery. I know that many of you are in the wilderness wondering if your kids are ever going to return to the faith. It's not lost on me. It's not lost that we approach Psalm 63 and we say, oh God, this is my great desire, but I just don't feel it right now. We can acknowledge that together and be here with one another, knowing that the Lord is in our midst. I also say those things to say, those of you who find yourself in the midst of the wilderness as well as small as your faith might seem, as little as it might feel. Not that you would be used in this way, but your faith is a great testament to the God that we serve. That you would hang on, that you would cling to Christ. And that your faith has kept you enduring in the midst of the wilderness. The first pursuit of the Christian in developing an appetite for God in the wilderness is thirsting for God and the second is finding satisfaction in him. God delights in the prayers of his children. We're commanded in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 to make our request known to God in this way. So David... When he finds himself in the wilderness running from his rebellious son who is trying to take over his kingdom, he has every reason to ask God for help and yet he doesn't. He simply reflects upon who God is and the ways in which he has come to rescue in the past. He says he remembers how God has helped him and he implied, so of course he'll help me again. And as David remembers, he says, verse five, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. The apostle Paul continues in Philippians chapter four saying that he has learned in whatever situation he is in to be content. He goes on to say that he knows what it's like to be brought low. He knows how to abound in any and every circumstance, he said. He's learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then he writes the familiar verse, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Isn't it interesting that one of the greatest heralds of the Christian faith, the Apostle Paul, had to learn how to be satisfied? It wasn't just given to him by osmosis. It didn't just appear to him on the road to Damascus as he was converted by that great light in the midst of the great light. It's something that the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest men in Christian history, had to learn. I think this must be one of the enemy's greatest tactics toward the Christian is to fool him or her believing into believing that since our desires and thoughts aren't directed towards God in every moment or in the way that we see King David's here, that we aren't in God, we aren't in Christ, and therefore we should not put any effort toward that end. Verse eight, he writes, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So I want to take a little doctrinal adventure for just a moment with this word. The Hebrew word clings, carries with it, connotes the idea of being glued together, to adhere to, to to be firmly united with strong affection So here, as David used the word cling, he's still meditating. He's still remembering upon who creator, sovereign God is. He isn't telling God what he wants here. He's simply remembering what God has done and what he's always done. That it is God who is the agent who is binding our weary and restless hearts unto him. It's God who does that. It is his powerful hand, his right hand that upholds us. You want to find satisfaction in God? The psalmist seems to say, remember who God is from his word. For the Christian, in light of the New Testament, we find a picture even more vivid than David's about the clinging that has taken place. The apostle Paul writes elsewhere in Romans chapter 8 about how the clinging works, how tight that bonding agent of God is. In verse 29 of Romans chapter 8, he writes that for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. And those who he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If God then has seen to it that you would be his child, how sure is it that he will do it? Very. We should be completely sure because it is God who is acting as the bonding agent. It is God who sees to it that what he wants to accomplish will happen And there's more. This clinging comes with the most beautiful promise, one that we need so desperately in those wilderness days. He writes at the closing of that same chapter, Paul does, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that is clinging. And in that, we understand why David, in the midst of the wilderness, has this overwhelming satisfaction in God that is not just limited to his sanctuary, to God's sanctuary. It is given to him for all of his life, for all time. John Calvin wrote this. There are some people who are religious religious on the exterior, but they lack a true knowledge a true saving knowledge of God. And the closer they are to religious ceremonies, the more spiritual they feel and the more they seem to long after God. But remove them from those religious ceremonies and their zeal for God vanishes." In considering what it looks like to develop an appetite for God that can withstand the wilderness, the question that we must ask ourselves is this, what does our spiritual life look like apart from the corporate gathering of God's people? What does it look like? How are we being spiritually formed? And if we go back to that earlier portion, knowing that there are liturgies all around us that are speaking into us exactly what life is and exactly what life should be, we must wonder if we don't find ourselves being spiritually formed outside of the Christian gathering, then who is forming us? What is forming us David didn't fumble himself into being satisfied with God as though he was the finest of foods. He didn't just find himself there one day. The wilderness exposed his true desires, you see. But don't miss this. It didn't form them. His true desires did not all of a sudden get formed when he found himself in the darkest of days. They had already been formed, so when the wilderness hit, David's true desires were exposed for what they are. God was his deepest longing. He already had a regular rhythm of remembering God. And when the wilderness hits, he clings to the God who is holding him in for all eternity. Three pursuits toward developing an appetite for God. Thirsting in, finding satisfaction in, and finally rejoicing in God. Although I gave you the context earlier for this passage that David was running from his rebellious son, Absalom, we see it now here in the last several verses. The problem before David, though there were many, was that there were those who are seeking to destroy his life, verse 9, but those who seek to destroy my life. But even now, as David reflects upon this huge problem before him, it doesn't become his undoing. It's not the thing that actually unravels him. In fact, don't miss this, his problem actually causes him to praise the wilderness that he finds himself in actually promotes the worship and glory of God by David himself. And so David essentially says, verse 11, those who seek my life will fail. Again, verse 9, sorry, but I, the king, will rejoice in God. Verse 11. He's saying, they may catch up to me, but one day their mouths will be stopped. These Israelites who rebelled against God's choice for king, that is David, would not ultimately win. And David is confident because of who his God is that they will fail in accomplishing their goal of destroying the faithful of God. And thus ends David's song. I think I'd like, on one hand, for David to finish this prayer, this song, and for him to look up and for everything be back to normal. His son wasn't rebellious anymore. He was back in his palace. He was back near the temple. He was back praising the Lord that he loved in his sanctuary. He was back among his friends and his family members. I know that that's often what I think when I, Go to the Lord in prayer. And I've got all this great anxiety before me that there are huge problems ahead, this daunting task. There is the beating of my heart. I don't know if you resonate. There's lots going on in our families There are lots going on in our world. There's a lot to keep up with. And sometimes as I bow my head and I go to the Lord in prayer, knowing who he is, I lift up my head and I just hope that everything is going to be made right. Anybody else? For David, that didn't happen. The divine problem solver didn't come through in the way that he might have hoped. And perhaps for David, that isn't what he was hoping, although that would be nice. And yet David's model gives us something so much better. David, you see, upon finishing his prayer, upon finishing his song, doesn't get changed circumstances he isn't immediately transported to the places that he once loved and, to, and given back all of his comforts. No, he finds something altogether different, altogether better. He finds who? God. Friends, we aren't promised that our wilderness will become anything different anytime soon, but we are promised that we will get God if we go to him by faith through Jesus Christ. We will get God. And in getting God in Christ, we find that our thirst, we find that our satisfaction and all of our rejoicing is met in him. Perhaps our wilderness is good for taking us to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us time as your people, as the gathered church today. What a privilege it is to worship you in freedom. God, we thank you that you have given us the opportunity to look to your word, to see the example of King David, to see as he finds himself in the midst of the wilderness that all hope is not lost. In fact, while he's there, he doesn't even ask for help. We see that he prays. He remembers your great character, that you are a God in whom he can trust. It is you, God, in whom we thirst. It is you, God, who satisfies us completely. It is you, God, in whom all our rejoicing lies. So God, we pray right now that if it is for us, a time of plenty, a time of much, a time of abounding, God, that you would help us to prepare now for the wilderness that might come In the future, and that if we are in the wilderness, and when we find ourselves in the wilderness, that our wilderness might be good for taking us to you. Help us, God. Help us train our desires. Give us a great appetite for you that can withstand the darkest of days, the deepest of pains the most difficult trials, would we look to you as our keeper, as our helper, one who we can enjoy in Christ Jesus forever. It's in his name that we pray, amen. Each week at South Point, we participate in a family meal called communion. And in just a moment, I'm going to invite those of you who have indeed trusted in Christ Jesus by faith for the forgiveness of sins to partake in this meal with us. There are four stations around the room, and at each of those stations, there are pieces of bread, the bread reminding us what Christ Jesus accomplished for his people on the cross, his broken body symbolized by that bread and we dip it into the juice, remembering that he poured his self out, his blood out, every ounce of it, that we might know him and know him fully. On the night of Jesus's betrayal, before he went to the cross to be crucified, he was praying in the garden of Gethsemane and he prayed knowing that in the hours to come, he would be crucified a terribly painful death, a public, humiliating death. And as he prays, he prayed, Father, if you are willing to remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was so in so much agony that night that the scripture tells us that the sweat began to look like great drops of blood just like King David as he began to pray and as he sang this song to God. Jesus, too, was in so much agony that the scripture says his sweat, again, looked like great drops of blood, and his prayer then didn't remove what was before him, but it certainly took him to his father, and so he went, and he died a death death. On the cross, according to the will of his father, and he took upon himself the sin debt of every single person who would ever believe in him by faith. And in believing in his name, the scripture testifies that we can have full assurance, forgiveness of sins, and we can have life in him forever in his grip. Held together, we saw this morning, by a bond tighter than any glue found upon planet earth, the strongest of glues upheld by his right hand. And by his spirit, we are being conformed, taught, trained how to grow an appetite for God that can withstand the wilderness. Family, if you are in Christ, come and partake in this meal.